Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8.30 p.m. And if you've missed it live, you can check out the podcast at cjsw.com. Tonight on Writer's Block, we are chatting with Helen Knott about her best-selling novel, In My Own Moccasins. And later on in the program, we are joined by guest host Angela Kublik, interviewing Heidi Jacobs. Stay tuned. Helen Knott is a Daneza, Neheya, and mixed Euro-descent woman living in northeastern British Columbia. In 2016, she was one of 16 global change makers featured by the Nobel Women's Initiative for being committed to end gender-based violence. She was named an RBC Taylor Prize Emerging Writer in 2019. This is her first book. Today on Writer's Block, we're chatting with Helen Knott about her best-selling memoir of resilience called In My Own Moccasins. Welcome, Helen, to CJSW. Let's start off with you giving our listeners a sense of this powerful story in which you share your difficult and also life-saving journey. Yes, it's a memoir, and it starts off at the point of my last use or withdrawing from my last use of substances, and it chronicles... um, healing and recovery from addiction, but also sexual violence and and trauma. And it also reaches back and tells the story of those who came before me. So my grandparents and my great-grandparents and just kind of looking at how did we end up as a family where we were at that point in time. Yeah, this book is just so uh, full of of vulnerability and um, also, you know, I think what a lot of people would would consider enormous courage to put yourself out there in such a a naked way, you and, you know, your loved ones. Um, And so I guess one of the first questions I have around that is what you learned about... um, intergenerational trauma and how you were on on a path that was an echo of other people's paths. Yeah, so at some point in my journey, I remember somebody telling me in order to understand like what your work is in this world, to look behind you and see what was done and what was left undone. And so when I did that, I looked at my family and I was like, okay, you know, there has been a history of addiction and people have gotten sober. So that's something that I achieved. But what was left undone was um, continual healing and, you know, healing um, because addiction itself is a result of other things. So looking at trauma and ingrained behaviors and dynamics and all of those fun things and, um, knowing that that was a part of my, my purpose to, to change that. And by changing and healing aspects of myself, knowing that um, it would rip out, out into my family through not only like previous generations, but the generations that are coming up. So 
my son and, you know, my, my baby niece and my little cousins and being able to role model what that looks like for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, your, your story made me think a lot about uh, some of the things I, I learned within my own family about addiction and healing and, and uh, this notion that, that you have to make space for the wound. You almost have to name it before you can begin to heal from it. And it's not until that happens that you can apply all of the, the addiction tactics and actually have some traction. Um, because, because the addiction isn't the problem. The addiction is the solution when you're inside of that wound, right? Or it seems like the solution. Yeah, that reminds me of um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by Gabor Matei. Mm-hmm. And the way that he talks about addiction and trauma, right? Where he's like, uh, it was, I forget who he was talking about, but it, the line is like, she never stood a chance. And it was just talking about an individual who had went through a pretty um, rocky childhood. And for me, learning about addiction and its relation to trauma, um, not saying that all addiction kind of forms in that way, but I would say the majority of it does um, help me understand myself and my own journey. And it's mm-hmm. been this, you know, I'm sober over eight years now, so it's been this process where I'm still healing and learning and little things will come up and I'll be like, oh, you know, where did, where did that come from? And I remember calling my girlfriend, I think this was probably about three years ago, and I was frustrated because I was struggling with something, and she has a, a few years sobriety on me, and she's a, a counselor, and she started laughing. She's like, oh, well, darling, you're an addict. <laughs> That's why you're struggling. I was like, still? You know, <laughs> after six years? Yeah, so I guess it's a lifelong journey of, discovering and revalidating and and continuing to do the work, hey? Mm-hmm. It is a it's definitely a process, but it's a process that I'm I'm grateful for now. So let's uh, talk a little bit because there are are so many amazing elements about you, the person. And uh inside of, of that struggle that you had for so many years and, and managed to get past. At the same time, you were doing all of these, you know, amazing things that, that I think would have hidden for outside eyes a lot of the, the things that you talk about in your memoir. You, you know, you were a great student. You achieved all sorts of international um, things. Tell us a little bit about 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 some of those um, wonderful things, and also though what you learned about your own culture and yourself um, in going outside of it. In 2010 or 2011, yeah, I was um, lucky enough to be a part of a cultural exchange, and it was like a school build. So I went with this organization called Schoolbox to Nicaragua, and um, we did. Uh, a school in a community called Leon and a part of that was a cultural exchange and it kind of spurred me on this this path of like asking questions because before I knew 
some things about being Danusa, which is my tribe through my maternal line, and I knew a little bit about being Cree and Métis through my father's side, um, but I didn't know a lot. And so that's when I started asking questions and learned like a basic introduction in, in the language. And um, But I also began my trajectory of uh, experiencing in the world and wanting to do things outside of myself. And I always had that drive, but throughout my teenage years, I was just so so deeply struggling with addiction that there wasn't any space to to focus outside of myself. So when I first got that bit of clarity in my first chunk of sobriety, I started doing all of these things. And uh, it led me to the UN, and I was an Indigenous Youth Ambassador with the First Nation Family and Caring Society. And a little bit of everywhere. Um, there's a lot that's not captured in the book. And I knew I could have went on and uh, added more of the social justice and the advocacy work and land defense work that I've done. But I had a purpose with this book, and that was to focus primarily just on addiction and healing. So mm-hmm. I didn't go beyond that because, you know, there was times where... Um, when I was doing my bachelor's in social work, you know, I got to go to Guatemala and I sat with indigenous communities that were impacted by mining and got to hear their stories and really seen the similarities between um, how connection and relationships and their communities had changed from uh, resource extraction and how that paralleled some of the community that I've seen back home. Um, and I've just been uh, really blessed with this range of experiences from like really, really hard things to um, these amazing and beautiful moments with people from around the world. Uh, two years ago, I was in, actually it's almost four years ago now, <laughs> 2016, I was in Germany for a, uh, Nobel Women's Nobel Women's Initiative. So they have mm-hmm. a biannual conference, and it was founded by um, all of these previous women who have won the Nobel Prize. And there was these global change makers, so women from all over the world. And I remember going there and feeling like a little girl, like swinging my legs at the big big girls table, <laughs> um, <laughs> and being able to hold space with all of these women and you know, share poetry and share food and listen to stories and um, just be in the presence of such amazing women that, you know, have really um, sacrificed to, to make change. And, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything when it comes to that story, which is mine, um, because I know that a lot of parts of it are, are really hard, but, I've also been blessed with the the opposite side of it as well. Mm-hmm. That that's beautiful that you can say it so strongly and recognize that. Um, at one point in your book, you say healing is not a solitary act, and, and the story you just told kind of speaks to that too. You you also talk a lot about um, the spirituality that you grew up with, Christianity within your family was was very strong and and some sometimes very positive for some of your kin. Um, 
And for you, learning about the spirituality of your culture is what helped you. And it struck me that that was another echo, this, this journey of learning about um, perhaps what the other, you know, how the other can provide strength and um, a way to see. Yeah, I think even now, um, and I think even now I see that there still is that uh, pitting of, of the two against each other when we're thinking of of Christianity and or faith faiths of that nature versus like indigenous spirituality and um, there's still quite a bit of oppression and you wouldn't I don't know if you would think that there is but there still is where um, there's still a lot of pointing and saying like this is bad or this is not okay and I can see it sometimes within different facets facets of of my own family through my paternal side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I was in a, a documentary called uh, Peace River Rising, and in there, there's a scene where I'm down by the river, and I, and I think I did a tobacco offering, and um, I was holding my eagle feather, and one of my dad's family members called him up, and they were like, why is she praying to that feather? Like, why is she doing that? She shouldn't be doing that. And my dad, who used to come from these very rigid beliefs, you know, took that time to explain to them that, hey, you know, that's not what she's doing. And this is what she's doing and breaking it down. And we often have these conversations about where we came from as a family in terms of that um, rigidity when it comes Mm -hmm. to faith. And he's... He's like, why? Well, you know, I can't believe I was like that. But he sees himself almost as this like intermediary now, um, where he can kind of like break things down and go back and forth. And uh, I think my healing process, which made it that made it so that I had to uh, connect with traditional ceremonies in order to be well and to find myself and to call pieces of my spirit back have really brought that back into um, my immediate family and have shifted, has shifted that, that experience for um, the kids that are growing up now in our family. Yeah. So, so your learning has taught others and now they are, now that they have learned, they are themselves becoming teachers. Yeah, so it's that ripple effect. Throughout the book, I noticed that you 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 talk about the healing that the that you found in in the telling of your story, in the process of of writing it down or sharing it. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned uh, about yourself and, and the, you know, the reasons why you are a writer? I've been writing since I was a little girl. So it's always been something that I drawn, I was, I've been drawn to writing and reading. My dad said when I came home the first day of kindergarten, I was like visibly upset and he asked me what was wrong. And I was like, I didn't learn how to read today. And I was so angry. <laughs> um, mm. I wanted to be a reader even before I could read. And uh, writing has always been cathartic for me. Um, 
I know during my, my youth when I was very angry and very lost and uh, felt very alienated that sometimes writing was the only thing that I had or felt like the only thing that I had. And I believe that it very much kept me alive during those periods too. It was Mm -hmm. one of the only outlets. And as I, you know, grew and my, um, my path changed and I started going on this healing space, my relationship with, with writing changed where it wasn't just, you know, a a band-aid solution, but it was a tool to, um, to help me, you know, unearth things or to really sit with things. And I think that's it, is that when you're writing, it demands that you sit with feelings and events and Mm -hmm. process them. And it puts you in that space. And um, right now I'm writing and it has a lot to do with with grief because I, I lost my mom in November and then I lost my Asu or my grandma um, in May. And those are pretty big losses for me. And I can feel this like pull, like, okay, you need to sit and write. But I know how much emotional work that takes. And mm-hmm. sometimes I will and I'll sit down and sometimes I'll write for five minutes and then I'll be crying and then I'll be like, that's enough for today. And I'll just shut the shut the computer screen. And I've learned to be more gentle with myself in that way of being like, okay, you know, you can take that time and process and if you need to put it away. So it's actually been um, probably about, like I wrote a poem the other day, but it's been about a month since I, I wrote. And I'm like, okay, I'm just kind of noticing and watching myself as, as an observer being like, okay, this is where you're at and you're in a stage of preparation and that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. N- knowing, knowing where you are in the process and how to honor that. And I, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear you lost your mom and your aunt too. The, they're, they're very vivid in your, in your book and that's, that's a terrible loss. Yeah, it's been a, been a pretty, pretty big loss especially um when you come from a family that that is like centered and revolves around women Um, Mm -hmm. and we you know because I grew up with just aunties aunties and you know my grandma and there was my papa and there's yeah there's my dad (laughs) but it was like the women who um made the decisions or held the family together and Mm -hmm. they're they're pretty big losses to navigate afterwards and to understand, I guess, like how their absence has, has changed the world or shifted how you are within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It shifts the whole family and who, who, who becomes the new go-to people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's what I've been writing about is like becoming a matriarch. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that makes me think about, you know, the, the, sticky part of a memoir that um, all of us who write family stories wrestle with, I think. And I'm curious how you navigated that balance because these stories are yours and, and so you can tell them, but in the telling of them, you are also telling the stories of others. And, 
And for some people, that can be so difficult and treacherous. They never really write it, right? They 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 think about it, or they they maybe have their their private secret draft, but it never becomes public, like in like what happens when you publish a, a book and it becomes a national bestseller like you did. So how, how did you find that balance between honoring your own story and honoring the people within that story? Yeah. So um, when it comes to my parents and my mom and dad, um, my dad was pretty much like, okay, do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> Very like hands off. But he also sat with me and told me a lot of stories. Um, so a lot of the historic pieces and I'd come back and I'm like, what happened again during this time? Or what was the name of that mayor? And, um, and then we had discussions of like, okay, so what are some possible reactions of, of your family? Um, cause my dad was raised by his grandma or his cookum uh, and her name was Helen. That's who I'm named after. And then with my mom, um, we had a very real understanding because we both came from addiction of like the possibilities of what this book could do in terms of healing. And for her, it was like, well, okay, if this could help somebody and it could help someone heal from um, addiction and see what some of the underlying causes, then I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so we ventured into that space with that intention. Um, and then, beyond that and how I balance it with the other side is I don't name a lot of my family members and I just kind of keep it anonymous in that sense. And there was a lot of things within my story that I didn't tell because I couldn't tell them without telling other parts of my family story. And Mm -hmm. for me, I wanted to be really mindful of where people were in their healing journeys and I wasn't willing to upend that or upset that. Um, so I left those pieces out because I was like, this could harm somebody in their, their journey or this could set them back. So I'm not going to put this in. And I sat with some of the little stories too. Um, and for me, it was like, okay, well, what was the purpose of me telling this story? There's like a, a scene in there and it seems very small and it, because it's not something major that happens, right? But it was with the auntie's boyfriend and he made an advance. And um, after, you know, I talked about it, they ended up sending me flowers saying like, your uncle loves you and how, how that felt. But for me, that was like, okay, this is looking at silencing. And mm-hmm. I know from having conversations with women from across the country that silencing within families happens all of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So just trying to highlight these little pockets. And and so for me, all of the little stories had a purpose in that sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. And it's managed with an, an incredible amount of grace, you know, for, for as the reader. Um, there was a very, although the stories were raw, the things that happened to you were raw the handling of the people was so gentle and I, I found that very touching. I'm glad to hear that because <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to, to make sure that it came across that way. I think the only thing that like sometimes like not hurts a little bit, 
but I feel some sadness, I guess, because my mom has passed. And um, usually people, I don't know, because I did talk about that, that piece of our relationship when we were younger and she was like heavy in her addiction. And um, that segment was used or a segment from early on was used and republished just as a, a standalone. Mm-hmm. And I just refused to have any interaction with it now because I was like, it's only a tiny bit of the story and some of these people won't read the whole story and they won't know, you know, that my mom's relationship is really good and they won't know. And so there's that part where um, that can be kind of difficult sometimes. Well, that's, I think, something I've heard from lots of writers, you know, that once your words are out in the world and people sometimes appropriate them for their own telling and it's that's a tough one to uh, come to terms with yeah it can be interesting um, you know interacting with with readers and uh, people who have formulated opinions and I always love hearing opinions and um, how people have interpreted the work or how it's related to them. And through this process, I've had a lot of conversations with strangers where it's been a very raw conversation um, and where they give me pieces of their truth too. I'm always grateful for that. But there's times too where someone is like, oh, you were doing this at this point and this is what was happening for you and this is what you were doing and saying. And sometimes they can be really far off and I'm like, no. <laughs> Don't tell me what I'm doing or what my story is. <laughs> I was there and you were not. And I think yeah. you've added some filters here. <laughs> so that can be kind of funny sometimes. But then it makes me think, I'm like, how many times did I do that? You know, when I was like reading, did I do that? <laughs> so maybe yeah. think about my reading practices. <laughs> yeah. There's just learning in everything, isn't there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Helen, not before we we sign off, and just you you talked about the things that you're you're writing about now, and I have a feeling that this book is just the first of many that will be delighted to be able to read over the years. Um, what are, what are you working on now? Actually, <laughs> I kind of mentioned the the title earlier on. Um, it's going to be called Becoming a Matriarch, and it's just talking about transitioning into, uh, I guess, a, a space um, that was kind of left behind by my mom and my grandma, because I'm, I'm 32, and and really thinking about, well, what does that mean, and what does it mean to hold that space, and so navigating through, like, mother loss, um, but looking at the the healing aspects and the letting go of grief and growth. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like it will be every bit as powerful as this beautiful memoir in my own moccasins. And Helen Knott, I'm very grateful that you took the time to jo- join us today on CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you so much for having me, Daphne. 
Heidi L. M. Jacobs was born and raised in Edmonton. While attending the University of Alberta, she worked a variety of retail jobs, including selling shoes. She is currently the English and History Librarian at the University of Windsor. Hi everyone, I'm talking with Heidi L. M. Jacobs about her delightful novel, Molly of the Mall, Literary Lass and Purveyor of Fine Footwear, from New West Press. Thank you for joining me today, Heidi, and welcome to Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. To get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the story? Sure. It's, um, it's a novel set in Edmonton in the early 1990s, and the protagonist is named Molly McGregor, and she's an English major um, at a university there. And the novel takes place partially in a very large shopping mall in Edmonton, but also um, at a university in Edmonton, too. So in the summer, she's working at the shopping mall, and she's a shoe salesperson. And while she's doing that, she's also trying to figure out a way in which she can um, live a more literary life than she currently does. So she's trying to figure out ways in which she can become a writer in this very unwriterly environment. So, and then when she gets to university, she's also doing you know all the reading because she's an English major, and she's really juxtaposing what she reads about with what she lives and sees, and so. At its core, this is really a book about readers and books and how people use books and read books to think about who we are, um, how they guide us, and how they help us find a space and a place in in the world. And um, so I think in this book, the mall and the university and the sort of literary world all sort of swirl swirl around and uh, help Molly find who she is and helps her find her own literary voice within um, within Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And one of the writers in particular that Molly often draws guidance from is Jane Austen. Um, for example, at one point she wonders what persuasions Anne Elliot would do in her situation. Why did you yeah. choose Austen as Molly's touchstone? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, a big Jane Austen fan myself, and I know... She resonates with a whole lot of people. Um, I remember when I was Molly's age, I was sort of the same age as a lot of her characters, and it, it, they just seemed um, to be going through very similar things with um, with each other. And you know what? My computer is... Gen- Can you hear it making this horrible sound? No, I can't. Okay. I'm going to turn it off because you're going to get this... Uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And I also realized I'm probably going to get a little ping from email if I didn't turn it off. So there we go. I just got my work computer um, to work from home a couple weeks ago. And, oh, yeah. And so kind yes, of like, all oh, the yeah. joys of COVID and yes. we're in. Yes, yeah. exactly. I was on sabbatical up until the 1st of July, so um, everybody else is second, you know, they're, you know, experts on this, and I'm just still trying to figure this all out, so... Mm. Okay, there it goes. Um, do you want me to ask, start my Jane Austen question again? Sure, yeah. So the question was, why did you choose Austen as Molly's literary touchstone? Um, I think partly it's because uh, I, I am a big Jane Austen fan. Um, she's one of the writers I, I like a lot and I, I look to. Um, and I also think, given Molly's 
age, the characters will seem very similar to to her and in dealing with um, trying to sort their way out in the world and, and find themselves in the process too. I think Molly also likes Jane Austen because um, being a writer was something that Jane Austen sort of hid. She wasn't a very public author. So her her whole writerly career, I think, would, would uh, be very similar to, to Molly, that Jane Austen had to sort of carve out space and a place and, and write um, her own very specific specific thing. And I also think um, Molly was attracted to the fact that Jane Austen was writing about the world she lived in, which is, you know, a, a village, basically, often. Um, and I think... I think the limitations of of um, Molly's perceptions of her own city sort of might have found a, a bit of a example in Jane Austen about how to write about where you live and, and who you are in the world you exist in. So I think I think that's where she mm-hmm. she was coming from with that. Yeah, at one point Molly is it channeling Jane Austen and uses that three or four shoe stores in a prairie city might be the very thing. Um, so that speaks to, you know, Molly's desire to write about her own world. But why did you choose Edmonton and, you know, the mall and university campus specifically? Um, I, you know, I don't know. It, it just started as this uh, little idea that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I, it started with like a little sort of vignette and short story, and then it just sort of grew and, and grew and grew. Um, I think... For me, one of the things, um, I just wrote a little essay about, about this too, about growing up in a place you never see in books or see on TV or anything. Um, and how do you make where you live a literary place? Like, how do you, is there a reason there aren't poems written about Edmonton in the winter? Maybe, maybe not. And so I, I, I think I was really interested in that question about how do you, how do you write a literary city? How do you create, um, the city that you know and are from and that people deride frequently, um, how do you make that into a literary setting? And so I think I really wanted to set it there. Um, the mall was just sort of a nice juxtaposition for the, the university, and I think those two settings feed very well into each other. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think that's sort of where it's going. And, and malls are also a place that people tend not to set fiction in, so I was intrigued with how do you write a a book about, um, I think I read a book about a community in a mall. That was an issue too. So, and then of course there's a whole long tradition of um, English departments and academic satires. So that was just fun to write. It was very fun. I enjoyed um, Professor Dullardson in particular. <laughs> yeah, I had some fun with the names too. So yes, yeah, and and I did really appreciate as someone who lives in Edmonton currently, and you know is very familiar with the mall and went to the university you are, you know, writing about, presumably. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, it does, it did speak to me on a level of not having had this place reflected to me in literature very much as I was growing up. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> thank you for enjoying that. Um, and so was it a conscious decision? That, well, obviously it was a conscious decision, but um, you kept the 1990s time frame. Um, rather mm-hmm. than, you know, bumping it up to a more modern setting. What mm-hmm. led you to make that choice? Um, there are a few sort of pragmatic reasons. I left Edmonton in the early 90s, and um, 
for a couple years after I left, it didn't change at all. Um, and then more recently, it's changed radically. And so I, I wanted it to be, to ring true to the place that I was writing about. Um, so because I didn't live there, I was really quite, I guess, being a librarian, I was really meticulous about fact checking everything and making sure that businesses were where I remembered them and, and different kinds of details. Cause, because I thought if you're going to write about a city that's never in fiction, I, I wanted to do it well. So I wanted to do a city that I knew. Um, but as I kept writing, I realized one of the great perks as a writer about writing pre-internet is uh, Molly has a whole lot of time where she's by herself, like totally by herself. So I think now if I were to set in, you know, post-iPhone era, she would never be alone. She would always be connected. She would always be able to chat with people. Um, there are just one particular plot element, I don't want to say too much, um, that could not have happened if she had internet or, you know, text or whatever. So because she has to wait for something in the mail, right? So yes. um, if you live in a world where you have to depend on the, the mail and getting a letter in the mail, um, that changes things. So that you know, obviously had to happen. Um, but yeah, I really, in retrospect, really liked having that, that time where she could actually just go into her own head and, and think her own thoughts, like on the bus or on her lunch hours and, and things like that. So, which is very rare that we have those times where we're, I think being on planes when you're not allowed to use your phone is probably the only time really that we're really, truly disconnected these days. And that's a lot of where her inner dialogue with Jane Austen and other literary figures does take place in the book. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was important. Yeah. So um, congratulations. Molly of the Mall recently won the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, at what point in the writing process did you realize that Molly was going to be a humorous book? Um, probably from page one. Page one. Um, I started it many, many years ago in a, a writer's workshop, and um, we had to produce writing like five pages a day every day for, I don't know, six weeks or something like that. And and early on, I sort of twigged onto these little stories of, of Molly, and people loved them. They thought they were really funny, and I loved writing them because I didn't have to come up with a, a new topic to write about every week. Mm-hmm. I could just add a new anecdote. Um, so it was always sort of a, a funny book, but I think throughout the revisions and the writing, the kind of humor that came out, um, it was a little slapsticky before, um, a little over the top and, and ridiculous, and um, I mean, it's still occasionally over the top and ridiculous, but a lot more so in the earlier drafts. So, and I think the other thing that I added, there are some parts, um, actually just a couple of days ago, someone said, there were parts that actually kind of made me nostalgic and, and weepy and um, sort of, so there's a, you know, the humorous parts, but then there's also um, this person I was talking to said, you know, there's this sort of very human part that sort of grounds and balances the, the humor of it too. So that wasn't there in the early drafts. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it, it started off. I think the only thing that's still from the original is the, the rabid Pekingese guy and the, oh, yeah. Yeah, was and the cigarettes. Yeah, so and the phone calls. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the only thing. But there was a lot of that kind of 
that mm-hmm. kind of thing in the early drafts of it. So it sounds like um, writing humor comes quite easily to you. Um, <laughs> sometimes or is it when I'm challenging. <laughs> no, I mean I. I <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'll just sit down and. Um, I remember working on on Molly. I'm like, I don't know where I'm going to go today. And then you just be like, Oh, I wonder what. I wonder if she did this. I wonder if she did this. And then I'm just sort of chuckling to myself in in my office about where things can go. Um, so it's, it's kind of it is kind of fun as long as you know you're not in a public place laughing to yourself as you type. But um, yeah, it was it was a really it was a fun a fun to write. What were some of the bigger challenges in pulling the novel together? Yeah, it. Uh, I, I think I alluded to. It took me a long, long, long time to write write this. Um, I actually haven't figured out how long, but it was a very long time. Um, and uh, I think just keeping keeping going um, was sort of the biggest challenge. And I would sort of even now. Um, I was talking to someone last week, and they commented how the sections are all very short, and why was that? And I think partially it was because that's sort of the amount of time that I. I had to to write it, so it's these short little episodes. And um, a few years ago, I had a, a sabbatical, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to see what I have. And I printed off everything and, and looked at it. And you know, I've been working on this for you know 15 years or something, and so I had a lot of little little scraps. And then, remarkably, they all sort of fit together in a in a narrative arc. Um, I had to delete a lot, and I had to rewrite a lot, and I had to write a whole bunch of new stuff. But I was really quite struck that there was actually a um, a narrative that I had half half of the you know I had all seasons and I had half in the mall and half in in the university and and uh, so that that helped sort of doing that. So I think the danger of writing it over so many years is that there wouldn't be any continuity. But I was really relieved and, and happy that I could actually see um, character developing and um, a bit of a plot emerging from all these really disparate mm-hmm. disparate little sections that I'd written. Yeah, and to me, one arc of the plot that did come out kind of seemed quite Jane Austen-esque in nature in terms of the romance plot. So I don't know if that was an intentional homage, but yeah. Well, oh yeah, I mean, I probably, I mean, it would make sense. Yeah, I think it... Um, yeah, I think it had to, you know, a, a true fan of Jane Austen, um, and it's written in first person, so it's almost as if she's writing her own mm-hmm. story. I think she would have definitely had that that uh, mm-hmm. that little arc, mm-hmm. oh, which I don't want to say too much about in case. No, no, I don't. I'm trying not to either, because <laughs> yeah. that's part of the fun, of course. Yeah. Um, another part of Molly's life and of the story is music. So I love that you created a playlist on Spotify for Molly. So oh, yeah. people can find the link on the New West website. But yep. um, what do you think Molly would be listening to these days? Oh, I don't, yeah, I often wonder what she'd be listening to. Um, I think she'd be listening to a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, I think she would actually really like, um, she would like. Uh, she would really like Spotify, I think, because it would let her see a whole bunch of different things. Um, I'm trying to think what she would listen to right now. 
she would listen to the campus radio station. See, what is it? CS CJSR. No. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh, it is CJSR? Okay, I thought it was CJSW. Oh, yeah, she would definitely listen to CJSR. Molly would definitely listen to CJSR and love it. So, I think that's what she would listen to. Good question. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've kind of burned through most of my questions. Oh, here's one. Molly herself is a budding novelist. What writerly advice would you give her? Ah, would I give her? Yes. I would tell her just to keep writing. Um, I think a lot of people have asked me for, well, how, how do you write a book? And I say, you sit in your chair and you write. I know, but like, what's the trick? Like, you sit in your chair and you write. And I think that's, um, I think Molly would probably do that. Um, so just putting words on page, pages is, the most important thing you can do. You can always edit bad pages of prose. You can't edit a blank page. So I think that's really vital. Um, but I also think um, one of the things that Molly does, again, I don't really want to give too much away, but I think throughout she spends a whole lot of time trying to force an external vision of what is literary, what is romantic, what is beautiful onto where she lives and what she sees around her. Um, and I think I would, you know, encourage her just to see what she sees and think about what she sees from her own eyes and her own vision and sort of put down some of the lenses that she's imposing from other, other places. I think that's how I would get her to trust, trust herself to identify the sublime, the beautiful, the romantic that is Edmonton. <laughs> and shoe selling. And shoe selling, yes, absolutely. And polished sales, yeah. Yeah, so you talked about giving her advice to just keep writing, and you talked a mm-hmm. bit about earlier how long you were working on it. How did you finally know when it was done, the book, as a writer? Um Yeah, I, it's funny, I often, when I talk to students about writing and in creative writing classes, I'll sometimes I figured out the word count for the, the draft that I was initially happy with, that, I, that was accepted by New West Press, and I can't remember the word count offhand. And then I give them the word count of the one that's actually out in, in their hands, and they're just blown away because they think, you got rid of? 80 pages or 100 pages because it was quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it took a long time to sort of get it get it down. I had fantastic editors um, at New West and some fantastic friends reading it. But it gets to the point where um, everything that's in there needs to be there and everything that doesn't need to be there is gone. Um, I sort of talk about the writing as, as Jenga. Like, if you can take something out and it doesn't fall apart, it probably doesn't need to be there. Um, so there's there's quite a bit of that. But you get to the point where, like, okay, the, I can't I can't edit one more word, or I'm just gonna I could endlessly tinker. And it gets to that point where I could just endlessly tinker, and it makes no difference. Then I'm like, okay, this is just ready to ready to go and. 
Um, thankfully, when you've got really good editors, they also say, yeah, okay, this is, this is it. So, yeah. I don't know. It's, um, <clears throat> I think, um, to me, the writing is actually the easy part and the fun part. Um, the real magic comes in the editing. Um, and, and the hard work is, is the editing and cutting stuff that you love because you just, you spent days on this paragraph, right? And it just has to go. It's just not doing anything. So some of that is really tough, but that, that's where stuff gets, or good stuff gets great and great stuff gets really great. So yeah, editing is, is the key, I think. Mm-hmm. Are you working on anything new? And will you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, I. Um, if you've read Molly, which you have, you might be surprised that my other two books that I'm working on right now are about baseball, um, and occasionally shoes in one book. Um, but I've got a book coming out with uh, my husband and I co-wrote a book called "100 Miles of Baseball," and it's coming out next spring um, from Biblioasis Press, and it's uh, a two-voice. Um, no, creative nonfiction piece about uh, the summer of 2018 where we decided we would put a, a pin um, on our house in, on a map and draw a 100-mile radius from our house. And we went to 50 baseball games. And so this it's a you know, two-voice look at the summer about us looking at every possible kind of baseball game and thinking about the sport and things like that. Um, so that's that coming out. Super fun, yeah. Yeah, you know, I had a great time <laughs> with it, and um, yeah, there's there's a couple points where people said I wasn't expecting this to be funny, but there are some funny funny bits um, in it. So there's there is some some Jane Austen in the baseball book too, so that's good. Shoes and Jane Austen do appear in that book, um, and then another book that I'm working on um, actually just today is a. I'm co-writing a book about the 1934 Chatham-colored All-Stars, and they were a black baseball team from um, just about 40 miles from here, and they were the first black baseball team to win the Ontario Baseball Amateur Association Championship in 1934. So it's sort of a cultural, historical um, study, a little more academic and scholarly and and doing a lot of research. So that's taking a lot of of work Mm -hmm. to get all of that information together and on a page. Um, and then I have a whole bunch of really random notes toward, I hope, a, ne- a next novel. Um, I plan on doing some of that writing and developing work in sort of May and June, but, you know, this whole COVID thing, I just, I have, a, I'm just having a hard time thinking about funny stuff right now. Um, it's kind of hard to be funny yeah. when all this stuff's going on. Are there? So. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and I'm I'm hoping we'll all get out of that kind of mind mindset too. So uh, it's just sort of I think a lot to process. So I'm just keeping weird little random notes about things that I notice. But you know that's how Molly started too. It was just sort of you know a couple little sticky notes and various things. So. I think trusting the process that hopefully something will come of that is where I'm coming from. 
Well, I'm glad you persevered with Molly because, like I said, <laughs> I very much enjoyed it. So, oh, and, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, and I know you're a librarian, and I'm always I'm a librarian as well, and so I always have to ask, what are you reading now? That's my librarian. What am I question. reading now? I'm like most librarians, reading about eight eight things at once. Um, right. Yeah, I just finished. Um, there's an Irish woman writer who I really love called um, um, what is her name? Maeve Brennan. Maeve Brennan. I love Maeve Brennan stuff. Her short stories are are really fantastic. Um, I'm also reading a mystery series for sort of young girls. Robin Stevens' Murder Most Unladylike. So they're they're um, detectives. Oh, yeah. I think they're about eleven or twelve. I love them. They're just really quite quite delightful. Um, I'm reading Jill Hornby's Miss Austin right now, and a book about gardening from uh, 1898. This giant tome about um, flowers and how to grow things in the late 19th century. Um, Probably yeah. a different climate, too, than ours. So. Exactly. They seem to get a lot more rain, and they seem to have a lot more hired help um, to, you know, dig trenches and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, And then a really great magazine that my friend Jennifer just got me a subscription to, Uppercase Magazine, um, which is just, it's about creativity and curiosity, and it's so inspiring and great. So that's kind of what I'm reading right right now. Sounds good. I think I have things to add to my own too. I'm most curious. Like, anything, Heidi, in all of this I, that you want to insert anywhere? I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think so. Thank you for not asking me how much of it is autobiographical. Thank you. <laughs> oh well, yeah. No, I, if people get, I don't ask that one. <laughs> Unless they confess to it beforehand or something. Yeah. I just got this email. It's like, who is this person? I said, it's a fictional character. I know, but who is it? Like, it's a fictional character. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no. What are you reading? I'm curious. Oh, what am I reading? Um, I've been in a bit of a slump, and it's a COVID malaise, I call it. So I haven't yeah. been keeping up with my usual... List. So this was perfect for me. That's kind of the tone I've been looking for these days. And then I've also read, I'm trying to read, I'm slowly picking through Rebecca Solnit's Wanderlust. Oh, yeah. I love long distance walking. And so I've been kind of picking away at that in bits and pieces. And I love historical fiction. So I just read the Paris Library, which is about the American Library in Paris during World War II. Oh, it was kind of right up my alley. And then um, the series I've really been enjoying is the one mystery series you were talking about. Somebody was telling me about it, and I keep meaning to read it because I think I'd enjoy it. Because I was this spring I read this series that starts with the, um, the strange case of the alchemist's daughter, and it's all the daughters of, like, um, if Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde each had a daughter. and Oh, wow. Um, so they collect misfit young women, and then they 
kind of solve mysteries together. So there's oh, three of what them is that? that I quite enjoyed. It's The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter by okay. um, Theodora Goss. That's the first one. And there's three of them. So anyway, so that kind of filled up. Okay. A nice chunk of my spring during COVID when I couldn't bear to read anything serious. So um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and like oh, I said, you know I was quite delighted to find Molly, too, especially because she's oh. in Edmonton. So <laughs> that really... <laughs> Yeah. The other one that I read that I loved, um, it was, um, it's nonfiction, it's called Square Haunting, and it's about, uh, subtitled Five Writers in London Between the Wars, and kind of remarkably, five famous women writers happen to live in the same kind of apartment building in Bloomsbury, so oh, it's Virginia oh. Woolf, yeah. and Dorothy L. Sayers, and H.D., and... Eileen Power and someone who I can never remember the last one, wow, but it was so well, it was so good and it was so well written and yeah, it just really blew me away. Yeah, because I love Virginia Woolf. So. Yeah, I've been, I've been trying not to read a lot of Virginia Woolf, but I I find I just keep thinking about her in this pandemic. I don't know, like maybe it's because she wrote about getting bombed and all of those kinds yeah, of things. But, yeah, but um, yeah, I really love that. Um. And the other book that I... Do you know um, Maggie O'Farrell? Do you know her stuff? Mm, not, I've heard her name, but I haven't. Okay. I, I really it. love her, and I just read everything. She wrote this book called Hamnet um, about Shakespeare's son and his wife and various things. And it was the most beautiful, devastating book. Like, I just couldn't put it down because it was so moving and amazing and beautiful. Um and I read it, and it just—I'm it, hesitant to recommend it because it just sent me into this horrible tailspin of because it's also about the Black Plague, right? Mm, so yeah. Um, so when things get seem a little cheerier, I will highly recommend that one. Okay. But yeah, it, um, I will put that on my list for later down the road. Yes, just a little caution. Yeah. So, uh, but the end of it. my love of pen, of post apocalypse apocalyptic novels has come to haunt me this spring a little bit. So oh, okay. I love yeah. Station Eleven. I don't know if you've read that by uh, Oh I did, yeah. Yeah. Emily St. John Mandel and yeah, but it's a little too close yeah. to home right now. So if you haven't read yeah. it, wait. Yeah. So. Yeah, no it's funny because I've always like um whenever we're trying to find a movie my husband will say, oh, what about this? Oh, it's a pandemic. Like, I have never wanted to watch a pandemic movie or anything like that. So, it's like, yeah. so that's easy. But, uh, yeah, I always try to read the um, long list and short list for the Booker Prize and the, um, and the Women's Prize. So I was working on a couple of those. So, but, yeah, these interviews are always awkward because I just feel like, oh, I just spend the whole time talking about myself. And I really want to say, what are you reading? What? Yeah. You, no. You That's okay. Me. I appreciate you doing it, though. I usually, when I interview authors, I get to do it in person as a event at the library where I work. So mm. it's it's kind of odd not doing it in person, face to face. It's nice to get to tape it and edit, but on the other yeah. hand, it kind of loses something too. So, so thank oh, you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and I hope. Is it yeah. still kind of cold in Edmonton ish right now? It was well, cooler. We've had, we're having a rainy, cool summer so far. Much okay. to my